Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. All right, good morning. I love when we have family worship and have kids in the room. Kids, are you here? Give me a, like a really loud, I'm here. I asked for that. <laughs> I asked, for that, and you delivered beautifully. Thank you for that this morning. Uh, I, I'm glad that school's over. Are you glad for that? Yeah. Congrats. You made it through another year. Summer is upon us. I'm excited for that. I hope that you'll have lots of opportunities to connect with the church throughout the summer, that you'll do stuff with us, because it's going to be a blast around here. I hope you'll sign up for camp, because I know camp is coming, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Today, I want to start with a game. That's okay, right? We're going to start with a game. We're going to play a quick round of Simon Says. You know how to play Simon Says. So everyone, just let's do this together. We're going to have fun. Ready? Simon Says, touch your head. So you're participating. You get points already. Simon Says, touch your shoulder. Simon Says, touch your ear. Simon Says, touch your chin. Simon Says, touch your knee. Simon Says, touch your ear. (laughs) A lot of you touched your nose. (laughs) And you touch your nose, why? Because you follow the example in front of you. You follow the example that you see. That's what we're talking about today, that we follow the example that's put in front of us. And the conversation we're going to have today is something we've been building to for the last four weeks. We've been asking and answering questions each week leading to this moment. We've asked, should I follow God? And we've contemplated the beauty and the wonder of God and answered, yeah, it probably would be good among all the people we could follow, it would be best to follow God. We asked and answered, am I following God? And should I make disciples? And today the question is, am I making disciples? And really, in some ways, we kind of answered that question last year, or last week, sorry, not last year, last week. We talked about how with your lips and your lives and even your social media activity, that you are conveying a message, you're telling a story, that you are telling people, you're broadcasting what you believe is true and right and important. And the people who are observing you, the people who are watching you are learning from you. And in that way, you kind of can't help it. You just are making disciples of some sort. And the question really for us today is, am I making disciples of Jesus Christ? And so do this. Grab your Bible. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in your New Testament. 2 Timothy 2 is where we'll be. You've heard in this series that you can't not be a follower, that in some way, as you return again and again to certain voices or perspectives, you begin to take those on and they begin to replicate in you. You've heard that we can't not be leaders, that as we live life amongst other people, people are learning from us, being shaped by us as they observe us and watch us and see how we view things and do things. You've heard that life works in a certain way, that the whole human experience is built on this cycle of observation and fascination and transformation and replication, that as we see things and we become fascinated by them, they pique our interest, they pique our affections, they begin to change how we view things and do things. And as we view things and do things differently and people watch us, that, that new way of thinking, that new way of speaking, that new way of living begins to replicate in others around us. And today we're going to look at a guy named Paul and a guy named Timothy, who I think really exhibit all of those things that we've looked at over the last few weeks. 
Paul is a guy who was endlessly fascinated with Jesus Christ from the very first moment that he had an honest look at who Jesus was. He honestly observed Jesus for all he's worth. He became endlessly fascinated and he began being reshaped in every way by who Jesus Christ is. In fact, every day of his life, he would say that he was becoming more and more like Jesus. He said that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18. Well, Paul comes along and meets a guy named Timothy in, in Acts 16 on a mission trip to Timothy's hometown in Lystra. And this is the second time Paul had been in Lystra. The first time he was in this place, he came sharing the gospel, seeking to make disciples and plant churches there. And as a part of that, the Lord reached the hearts of a woman named Eunice and a woman named Lois, and they became some of the first followers of Jesus in Lystra. Now, they were Timothy's grandmother and mother, and so their faith didn't remain with them, but it was passed along to young Timothy. And a year later, when Paul comes back to town, Paul sees Timothy, and Acts 16 says Paul came there and a disciple was there named Timothy. He's not just a young man who has observed the faith of his mom and his grandmother, but he now himself has become a follower of Jesus. A disciple there named Timothy, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And so he invited Timothy to travel with him. And over the next 15 years, they traveled together and they learned together and they served together and they made disciples together and they planted churches together. And Paul brought young Timothy along on this journey with him. And you see the, the depth and the intimacy of their relationship because at times in First and Second Timothy, Paul calls him my son, my son in the faith. And other times he says, you're like my brother. And other times he says, you're my co-worker. And at this point, Timothy is the pastor, the elder at the church at Ephesus. Now, we're going to look at 2 Timothy here, and I want you to know the world that Paul was living in, the Roman world that Paul was living in was an absolute mess at this time. I mean, it's always something or everything, and this is an everything kind of time where women and children were not treated as human beings. They were treated as property belonging to their fathers and their husbands. Slavery was normalized in this culture, and, and poor people were marginalized and not cared for at all. And the Roman society in which they lived was marked by immorality and injustice, and absolute brutality was celebrated in this world. When Paul sits down to write this, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's, he's about to be killed under the leadership of Nero, one of the most unjust emperors in history. Nero was a man who killed his own mother. He killed his own wife, and tradition says he probably killed his own second wife as well. And Paul is now in prison, really ultimately under the leadership of Nero. Nero's a guy who set the city of Rome on fire in 64 AD as a part of furthering his own political purposes. But when he did so, he had the city set on fire, and then he goes around saying, you know, it, it was the Christians that set Rome on fire. They were trying to revolt. And so the Christians were being blamed for actions he took as a part of furthering his own political design. And Paul, soon after writing this letter would be beheaded, and tradition says in, in some part at least he was beheaded as part of a cover-up uh, over the political move of burn, the burning of Rome in 64 AD. And I want you to understand this because I want you to see what's on Paul's mind. In moments when his world, I mean his entire world is absolutely on fire, what's he thinking about? Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Paul writes to Timothy. He says, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'll confess verse 2 has been one of the most impactful verses in, in my life. It's one of those verses that has thematically shaped so much of who I am and how I see my... It's, it, that's a convoluted way of saying I love verse 2. I love it a lot. And God has used it to shape me in, in incredible ways. And what you, I want you to see here in verse 1 and 2 is that Paul, while sitting in prison, about to be killed, you get to chapter 4 and you see Paul knows his days are coming to an end. He's very aware of this. He passes to Timothy some of his final words, and it's not just passing along survival skills for how to make it through a tough world, but Paul is unpacking God's plan for, for bringing absolute world change to a world that absolutely needs to be changed. And I want you to see the plan, Paul's plan here, for the perseverance of the church through all of the things that they're going to face, God's plan for bringing light and life into the darkness of the world, and God's plan for changing the world. It's almost too simple. It's disciples, making disciples, who make disciples, who make more disciples, who go on to make more disciples. That's the plan God has for turning the world upside down on its head. Now, I know you look at the verses and you go, well, Kevin, the word disciple isn't even in these verses. And you're right, it's not. The word disciple is not here, but the pattern is. Paul is unpacking for Timothy what God's plan has always been for revealing himself to a world that so desperately needs him. And here we see at least four generations. It's Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful people, faithful people to others, and, and so on and, and so on and so on. And this plan is meant to have ripple effects holistically throughout the church through all time for the way we view and do ministry, for the way we think about the kingdom of God and how it moves forward, and for how we think about the normative ways that God will work among this earth to bring about His good works and His will on this earth. And there are moments and times, yes, throughout history and even today where God will work in miraculous signs and wonders. And he will do extraordinary things that cannot be explained other than, well, God did something here. And yes, God is revealing himself all of the time, naturally through creation. People can look at the stars and the heavens and even through our, our telescopes see the planets and go, my goodness, there is a God that made all of this in beauty and power. I want to know him. And yes, there will be times when, when people walk in the doors of a church or pick up a Bible and begin to read it, and the Lord will move in their minds and their hearts and bring them to saving faith. But the plan from the beginning that God has been working out step by step strategically and inviting us into is that of a disciple-making culture that catches and continues and we know this because this is what Jesus did when he came to earth. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he was willing to bless the crowds, and he came in, in certain situations and moments, and he preached to large groups, and he healed wide varieties of people, but his ministry was focused on, or what drove him in ministry was investing deeply in just a few people who he knew would continue to invest in a few more people, who would continue to invest in a, a few more people. This is what Jesus did. And when he gave his great commission to these few people that he invested so deeply in, he said to them, 
I command you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what was the most recent thing he had commanded them? To go and make disciples. That's the plan. That's the plan for turning the world upside down and God's goodness and his power and his grace and glory being seen on the earth. And when Paul writes to Timothy about this plan, he assumes and he rightly assumes that Timothy has been hearing Paul over the last 15 plus years and the things that Paul has been teaching him. And, and he did. It says that Timothy had heard him and he didn't hear him alone, but he heard him in the presence, it says, of many witnesses. What are the things, what are the things that Timothy heard? We can, we can think about it. We can make a list. We can scratch your head and try to think a minute, or we can just look it up. It, because when Paul invited Timothy to come along with him in Acts 16, Timothy did. He traveled with him. So we can see the places Paul went. Timothy most often was there with him also. We find he was with Paul in Corinth in Acts 18, verse 5. There, Timothy with Paul in Corinth, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to both the Jews, or to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, and he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. In chapter 19, Timothy is with Paul in Ephesus, and they're teaching the gospel there. It says they taught about the Holy Spirit there, and, and for two years, it says they remained in Ephesus teaching the word of God with the gospel being the central point of that message, repentance and dependence on Jesus Christ. In chapter 20, verse 20, Paul writes, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So what did Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, hear from Paul? Well, he heard pretty much the whole of New Testament theology from Paul. Like he heard the most profound truths that God has revealed to man from the Apostle Paul's own lips. And he didn't just hear them in a classroom taking notes. It wasn't just academic doctrine being spoken over him or to him, but he was with Paul. And he was witnessing that Paul had in him what Paul was calling Timothy to in verse 1, that Paul had been strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy witnessed it. He was with Paul in these places. He was with Paul, example, in Philippi. In Philippi, when Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten and thrown into prison, and when the walls, because of an earthquake, come tumbling down, and the prison guard is about to take his own life because he thinks all of my prisoners have run free and I'm going to pay the penalty of this, he looks around and he finds Paul and Silas singing joyfully because they know where their identity is and they believe in the protection of the Lord and they believe that God isn't done using them there. And so the jailer meets with Paul and Silas and they witness to him and he and his whole household become followers of Jesus Christ in that moment. Timothy witnessed this. He was in Philippi. He heard the teachings. He saw the demonstrations. He saw the strength and the grace that Paul had. And even now as Paul's in prison waiting for his death to come, what's on Paul's mind? It's that Timothy would press on and that he would continue making disciples, who would make disciples, who would make disciples. Verse 2 again, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. What had he heard? All of these things and so much more. Entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Just as Paul had poured his life out to Timothy, Timothy is to pour his life out for others. 
The very same thing that, that Paul did for Timothy. You, come with me. I want you to live life with me. I want to go make disciples together. I want you to learn what God is teaching me. Timothy is to do this to others who would then do this to others also to where they would be multiplying generations of disciples all the way to today and all the way until Christ returns building throughout the church. That's the plan. And it's the plan because Jesus did it. It's the plan because the apostles did it. Paul did it. Lois and Eunice did it to Timothy. Somebody kept doing it. Eventually, someone did it for me, and I'm doing it for other people. And I have the expectation the people that I'm pouring my life into also would be going and making disciples wherever they go throughout the earth. And you can look at this in a couple of ways. When we talk about discipleship, and I like the the phrase disciple-making even more. When we talk about disciple-making, We are committed to a culture of disciple-making both incidentally and intentionally, incidentally and informally, and intentionally and formally. And I want to show you what I mean by that. First, incidental disciple-making, informal disciple-making. It takes place whenever Christians come together for prayer or Bible study or worship or to practice any spiritual disciplines. There is a sense in which when we come together simply by being together, pursuing God together, we're shaping one another. We're we're continuing to sharpen one another. We are stirring one another up to loving good works because we know that we're all in this together, pursuing Him together. That's incidental or informal disciple-making. It's happening right now in this room. Now, intentional disciple-making or formal disciple-making takes place when one Christian invites another person to come along with them in order to deepen their walk with Jesus and to help them be better prepared to go and to make disciples for themselves. This is when someone says, look, I want you to come with me to learn what I'm being taught and to be trained to go and pass it on. And Paul is advocating for this. Paul's advocating that every Christian would be intentionally making disciples. And he, and he advocates for this because, well, because he knew Jesus did it. And because Jesus said to do it. And because Paul has seen for himself that it works. When you go to someone and say, I want you to come with me on a journey. We're going to learn Christ together. And the content, make no mistake, it's simpler than you think. The content is the gospel. The intent is multiplication, and the context is a unique kind of relationship. It's not just a list of of items to be learned and memorized, but it's a relationship. In uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul, he writes to them, he says, look, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, not just the facts, but also our own lives. You see that? He said, we didn't just come to town and throw down curriculum for you and walk you through it and leave. We poured out our lives for you. We're not talking about just a discipleship program where there's some marks and some lessons and some key concepts and some Bible verses to be memorized along the way, and you learn those, and then you've achieved a new status, or you go, well, I now have this this thing. I'm, I'm now a disciple of some sort, but we're talking about a unique relationship in which someone says, I want you to come with me, and we're committed to a unique kind of relationship where we're shaping one another to become more and more like Jesus. That's the kind of discipleship that Paul's advocating for, and it's the kind of discipleship that should mark legacy church. And so I want you to see what Paul says it takes 
to have a culture that is a disciple-making culture in, even in our own church. The first thing he says is you need to find faithful people. Do you see that there? You need to find faithful people. The word faithful means trustworthy. It, it, in this context, we're looking for people who don't lose, don't neglect, don't ignore, don't pass over the Word of God, the will of God. And, and if you read the rest of this letter, you find that Timothy had a lot of people around him who had no care at all for sound doctrine. They really didn't care. They did what they wanted. What they wanted to be true, they said, this is true, and they lived however they wanted. And what Paul doesn't say to Timothy is go to those people and argue till you're blue in the face with them. What Paul says is you need to look around for faithful people who are ready to receive the Word of, of God. You're ready to receive it. People who already are, are leaning in when the Bible is opened. This is how we can do this. You look around your life. You look around your life group. You look around your church. You look around the people who, in the neighborhood you live in, in the place where you work, and you go, who are the people who already have an inclination to kind of lean forward a little bit when the Word of God is open? Who shows an interest in, in learning more, you need to find people who are hungry for the Word of God. And listen, I'm not even really talking about how long have they walked with Jesus or how many years have they gone to church or how many Bible verses do they have memorized as being your best candidates. I'm not talking about how deep is someone spiritually. I'm talking about how hungry is someone to receive the Word of God. This can even happen before someone is a Christian. Disciple-making can, can happen before someone becomes a believer if they have a hunger for the Word of God. Paul says, look for faithful people. And once you've found some faithful people, look around your life, and you find some faithful people, what do you do with them? He says, we need to entrust to them the things that we have learned. And the word entrust here means to lay it out for them on the table. It's the same thing we see Paul do in, in Acts 16, 17, 18. It says that he lays everything out for them. It's to make a deposit in their life of the things that you have learned. And, and I think about what this looks like because for me and maybe for you at times when we think about making an investment in someone's life, it can be intimidating because we think, well, how much do I really have to give? I think it's simpler than you and I realize. It's really just four words. You ready for this? You teach everything you know. Teach everything you know. Four words. And I love that because it doesn't imply that you know everything. It just implies the things that you do know, you are faithful to teach those things. So teach everything I know. Not everything the Apostle Paul knows. Not everything that, that my life group leader knows. Not everything that a seminary professor knows. Not everything that, that the guy on TV knows. But just teach everything that I know. So what do you know? Well, you think simply about it. You go, what are the things that you, when you first started walking with Jesus, what are the things that you wish you knew that you learned along the way? Teach those things, right? What are some of the, the, the things that you've had to face, that you've struggled through, that you had to persevere in Christ through in life, and you didn't know how you'd make it, but somehow Christ brought you through it? Teach those things. What victories have you experienced in, in Christ? What does walking with Jesus look like today, and how does it differ from how it looked a year ago, two years ago? Look back at your last year and the things that you went through and go, gosh, Lord, what did you teach me last year? What are the big lessons? How did you encourage my life of faith? Teach those things. What did you learn last month? Teach those things. 
What, what did you do with your life group? Teach those things. What did you learn this morning when you opened your Bible and you spent a few minutes before the Lord before you ran into your day? Well, just teach those things. Teach everything you know. You don't have to know everything. Just teach what you do know. Remember what Justin told us last week? He told us all it takes when we had our interview here is hunger and faithfulness. He said Philippians 2 is that passage where we we know Jesus emptied himself, right? The Holy Spirit absolutely leading every action, every decision, no glory for himself, that he might lay his life down for us and receive glory that God's will would be done. And he encouraged us last week that we need to empty ourselves in such a way that it's not just my actions and reactions and my gut that leads me in these things, but it's the Holy Spirit filling my mind and my heart and my words in such a way, take the pressure off your shoulders for a minute, it's really the Holy Spirit who's leading the discipleship process through you. He's making disciples. You're just the vehicle by which He does so. All it takes is that you have a little hunger and a little faithfulness. And this is how it works. This is how, in fact, it's always worked all throughout history. It works in this way. We need to expect every disciple to teach others also. Everyone is to teach one, right? Each one, teach one. Say that. Each one, teach one. That's not hard. That's God's plan for bringing light and life into the world, that each one would teach one. And if you read the Bible, you find that this has always been the plan. Throughout the Bible, that's the way faith has been passed from person to person, from generation to generation. Moses discipled Joshua. Uh, Eli disciples Samuel. Naomi disciples Ruth. Uh, Jesus disciples the apostles. Lois and Eunice we, we saw in Acts 16. We see them again in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 mentioned that they have such an incredible faith. And Paul says, Timothy, I hope that your faith is as strong as theirs. I really do. After having traveled with him for 15 plus years, he goes, I hope your faith has reached the status of your mom and your grandmother. They discipled them. Paul discipled Timothy. Really, if you look at it, it's a relay race that we run. And at some point in your life, the baton was handed to you. And what do we do when we get the baton of faith, where we begin to follow Jesus for ourselves? What we don't do is put the baton in our pocket and walk off the track and say, I'm done here. (laughs) I got the baton. I'm good to go. And what we do is we keep on the track with our team and we continue running the race and we pass the baton to the next person expecting that they pass it on to the next person, expecting that they pass it on to the next person. I mean, this is the sacred pathway of our faith that each disciple would continue making disciples. And this is the plan that God has for bringing about redemption in this world. It's not that we would seek earthly power It's not that we would seek to put people in positions of earthly power to legislate God's will on earth. It's that each one would teach one and that we would all be a part of a disciple-making culture. That's God's plan for bringing change to a world that desperately needs change. Let me do this. I want to invite Justin back up. Pastor Justin is our discipleship pastor. He came up last week and we talked about the nature of disciple-making, what it is and, and, and kind of what it is we're aiming at. But I wanted to talk to you, Justin, again today and let you all hear from him uh, about some of the obstacles that come in the way of our disciple-making. Because I don't, I don't know if things are going to get more practical than this at any sermon I give at any point in my future with this church. Um, 
And I want to make sure that we understand very clearly what it is that God has for us to do and what stands in the way. So, Justin, first off, do you agree with everything I've said, or at least most of it? Yes. <sighs> saves me a meeting in the morning. Yeah. No, it saves us from having some confusion here. Okay, so we're on the same page to start with. Absolutely. Talk to us about what makes discipleship difficult, because... It is difficult, and if it wasn't difficult, everyone would be doing it. And I just would look out at the room, and I'd say, okay, who, who are you making disciples of, and, and who are the disciples that they're making? And no one would think about it. They just would start shouting out names, and it would be loud and rowdy because everyone would be calling out names for a very long time. But that's, we know that's not how it would go, that discipleship is difficult, and a lot of obstacles get in the way. So what are some of the things that make it so difficult? If we all nod our heads and agree to this... What makes it tough? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, um, you know my spiritual gift is rambling, so <laughs> I'm going to try to, to keep this very concise. We don't need another sermon from, from me. Um, but whenever I, I think about it in, in my experience, um, the, the people that I've talked to and, and in my own experience, uh, it comes down to a few things. One is time. Uh, where do we find the time? Um, is it uh, that we work a lot of hours? Is it that we have young kids in, in the home and it's just difficult to do that? Um, or is it just, I don't really, I, I feel like I'm going 90 miles an hour with my hair on fire and I just, I don't have the time. Another thing that, that makes it difficult is vulnerability. Uh, yeah. there's a, there is a level of vulnerability. We, we all wear masks of some sort. Not, uh, not, not COVID masks. Not but... COVID masks, correct. Okay. But, uh, but these perfect um, idealized versions of ourselves, mm. these masks, and in order to, to go deeper with people, we have to be vulnerable. We have to remove that mask um, so that the people we're discipling sees the real us, um, and so that they learn to be vulnerable themselves. That's scary. It, it is. It yeah. is scary. Um, I, I'm not sure about you, but I know for me personally, I, I hate looking like I'm weak. I hate looking like I don't know something. I hate yeah. not being the best at whatever it is that I do because I'm quick to say, well, that's dumb that I don't want to do that, you know. Um, but vulnerability is key. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself was vulnerable for yeah. us. And we, in turn, as we learn from him, are vulnerable for others so that we can grow together as the Spirit indwells us and works in us. Um, and then just relationships. What, what relationships do we have? That, that makes it difficult um, to disciple. Um, sometimes we, we think, okay, I can't disciple my family because discipleship should be out there, you know, for whatever reason we interpret it that, that way. Um, so we need, we need to find relationships that aren't my family or aren't my coworkers or aren't um, someone in my church, and we, we're confused about what that relationship is. Yeah. Um, and really, with all three of those things, with, with time, vulnerability, and relationship, uh, the answer is redeem it. Redeem your time, redeem vulnerability, redeem those relationships. So um, if, you're, if you're having to run to, to Home Depot on a Saturday morning, call a guy uh, to go with you and redeem that time and just have spiritual conversations. So it's not about creating a new compartment in your life, right. but it's about living a life of yes. disciple-making where you are yeah. with the yeah. people you're already with. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I, back in the, the text um, in 2 Timothy 2, if you, if you mark the, the rest of the verses that happen after that as well, I think some of the obstacles are, are outlined as well. It talks about suffering hardship, 
Um, talks about being entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Uh, talks about competing and, and, and following the rules. I mean, it's like everyday things are some of our worst obstacles. Yeah. What makes it worth it? Because there's no shortage of obstacles, and probably we yeah. could sum them all up and say spiritual warfare is right. the deepest obstacle right. because the enemy doesn't want this to take place, yeah. and he's working in all of these things yeah. to distract us. What makes it worth fighting for disciple-making culture in your own life? Yeah. Um, let, me, let me describe this by first telling a personal story. Um, one, of the, one of the young men that I've had the opportunity to disciple, um, one of the things that made it worth it for, for me is uh, a couple of years ago seeing him get married and me standing with him. Um, what made it worth it was seeing how he devoted his life to, the, to Christ, and he sought to not only just gain information, but he sought to be a man of God so that he could love and lead his wife and, and Lord willing, his family. Um, and those things make it worth it. Whenever you see someone connect with the Lord in such a way that they begin maturing, that their lives uh, mimic or, or show uh, living, loving, and serving just like Christ. And so that's not going to be everybody's story, right? Yeah. But that's a story that has touched me because I've been able to, to live that firsthand, see that firsthand. Uh, but whenever it comes to all of us, what are, what are we looking for? What makes it worth it? First and foremost is just seeing how engaged someone is with the Lord, uh, making sure that uh, whenever their eyes widen or they come to you and say, this, this never made sense, but as we've walked through this, I now see the truth in this. Um, and so just seeing people grow, seeing people live, love, and serve like Christ. That's, you know, that's kind of the phrase yeah. that I go back to. Um, if we see people living, loving, and serving like Christ, that's what makes it worth it. Because we're not, right, we've, we've talked previously, we're not making little Justins or little Kevins. Um, at least that's not the goal. Right. We're, we're, we're making uh, men and women that look like Christ. And so whenever we partner with people, we engage in these discipleship relationships, and we see people uh, looking more like Christ, it should excite us. It should make us yeah. uh, I mean, realize how... Any parent uh, knows that there's incredible joy in seeing your kids do well in this world. Not like, oh, I, I got an A, that's great. Yeah. But like um, getting the note from the teacher saying your child was a helper yeah. and, and this other kid was going through this. And you just, you well up with, with joy. Yeah. And you think about how Paul called Timothy my son. And, uh, you know, maybe it's my pride, but if someone sunned me, I'd probably be a little hacked off. Like, don't yeah. sun me. Um, except I think Paul earned it because of the investment he was making it was, it was a term of endearment right. that was deeply earned because of the, the trust that was there. Right. And so in the same way, when we act as spiritual big brothers and sisters, spiritual parents yeah. to another, there is incredible joy and yeah. in then seeing fruit of the Spirit exhibited in their yeah. life. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Um, we've, last week we talked about the difference between disciple-making culture and disciple-making mm -hmm. program, right? Too often, uh, churches may outsource their disciple-making to a program. Um, and I'm not here to, to pass judgment. I'm just saying that when Scripture calls us as the family of God to be brothers and sisters, moms and dads, that, that we are a family, when we outsource our discipleship, we don't do it in-house with our members. We're essentially creating spiritual orphans. Yeah. And spiritual orphans aren't going to understand the way of life within the family. And so instead of uh, saying, go out there and do this, 
and then come back to us and be a Christian. What we're seeking to do, is specifically what Legacy is seeking to do, is say, let's all do this as a family. That way we can eat at the dinner table together. That's good, though. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to kick yeah. you off stage because right. I'm not Sounds done. Good. I'm almost done with them, but Sounds not good. yet. So thank you, thank Justin. You. appreciate it. Y'all give me a hand. Okay. So I, I needed another minute, though, and I, I'm going to make this super brief. Um, I don't think I've ever given as practical and simple a challenge uh, or application as I want to give right now to close this series and this message. Um, this is as, as simple as I can put it, but I think it's as, as serious as as can be. Uh, and so much so that I wanted you to remember it. And so I made it in one simple statement that rhymes, because that's fun. And the statement is, always be in three. Okay? Can you say that with me? Always be in three. You won't forget it. Do it again. Always be in three. What I mean is always be in three disciple-making relationships, three types of disciple-making relationships. And this isn't a new or novel concept. People have shared this idea forever, virtually. I've shared it for 20 years. And, and I'll tell you right off the top that some people have criticized it. They have said it's too convoluted. It's too complicated. It seems too legalistic. I don't need three types of discipleship relationships all of the time in my life. But when I, I look at it and when I listen to the excuses that I begin to form in my own mind and heart against this... I just can't buy any of the excuses for why I wouldn't purposely invest myself in, in three types of disciple-making relationships. And, and the, this is what I mean. These are what they are. First, always be in three. Be a Paul to a Timothy. Be a Paul to a Timothy. Invite someone to come along with you, teaching them everything that you know. You don't know everything, but you teach them everything that you do know for the purpose of helping them grow in their faith, grow up in, in their walk with the Lord. And part of that is training them to continue the cycle of making disciples. You look around, you find someone who's hungry for the Word of God, someone who you think, Maybe I could help them. And you go to them and say, and this is out in the open. This isn't like I'm going to coyly try to, you know, sneak some Jesus stuff into our relationship. I'm going to say, I care about you. And I see so many good things the Lord is doing in your life. And I want to help you grow to be like more like Jesus. And you, you decide, I'm going to be a Paul to a Timothy. That's one relationship. A second one is be a Timothy to a Paul. You be a Timothy to a Paul. Have a Paul. And some of you, what that looks like is you need someone in your life who can weekly meet with you on Zoom, on phone, in person, whatever, and ask you good questions, tough questions, and push you on in your faith, call you up and teach you the things that they know that you might grow in faith and that you might develop as a disciple maker. Some of you may go, that's not the season that I'm in, and I don't maybe need to meet with someone weekly yet unless you're finished. Does anyone completely like Christ today? I need to make a list. Does anyone here, you are exactly like Jesus because I'm looking for a couple of helpers. No. See, the Bible says we are not like Him yet, but when He returns, we will be fully like Him then, right? Until then, we are becoming more like Him day by day as we seek to follow Him and trust the Spirit's work in us. So now we can still find someone who can help us to grow in the pursuit of being more like Jesus. And it may be that it's someone you talk with semi-regularly, but it's out in the open. I need you to help me grow. 
right? It may be that it's someone you call when you struggle. They know that they're, they're going to receive a call from you that says, I'm going through something and I need your help. Or it may be that they're checking in on you semi-regularly saying, hey, let's talk about the big questions and what's going on in your life. You need to be a Timothy to a Paul. And finally, one more, you need to be in a Barnabas-Paul type relationship. And we didn't talk about Barnabas in this series, but we did in the last series. We learned that Barnabas was a co-laborer of Paul. They met in Acts 14, and they began a ministry relationship where they stood shoulder to shoulder, looking out at the world together. They linked arms and like iron, iron sharpening iron said, let's go do this. Let's plant as many churches as we can. Let's make as many disciples as we can. And they spurred one another on to love and good works. And we need a relationship like that in our life. Someone to look out at the world and say, let's go get them. Let's go get them together. And I know the argument that starts forming in your mind immediately because it's formed in mine. It's, but Kevin, it is all a little convoluted and feels a little forced. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say always be in three. There's not a Bible verse that says always be in three. And you're right. There's not a command to always be in three, but it's demonstrated throughout all of the pages of Scripture, these kinds of relationships that the Lord has ordained that would help us to grow and walk in His Word and in His ways throughout the earth so that His will would be done. So it seems to me like it would almost be silly. It would be rejecting sound wisdom to just immediately say, no, I don't need those three relationships in my life. So the challenge always being three begins, I mean, very simply with this, that every one of you would go to the Lord and have a conversation with him in which you'd say, Lord, could these three relationships bring you glory? And ask his help to, an to get the answer to that question. Lord, could me being in these three kinds of relationships bring you more glory? Could they help me to grow in Christ's likeness? And, and you go, well, what's the value of me walking in Christ's likeness? Well, remember, Jesus said, I came that may, you may have life and life abundant. That's what Jesus wants for you. Christ's likeness equals life abundant. So could you having these relationships cause you to walk more in the abundance of life? And another question you might ask of the Lord is, could me being in these relationships further the gospel on the earth? Could it lead to, to beauty from ashes? Could it lead to change in a world that desperately needs change? You ask those three questions of the Lord, I bet you the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And if it's not, let's talk. I bet you the answer is yes, yes, and yes. God's plan for bringing His goodness into the world has always been that people of faith would purposely invest their lives in others, that they would grow in faith and deepen in their walk with the Lord, and part of that would be training them to make more disciples of others. That's the challenge for us as a church. Would you pray with me? God, this morning, when things get super practical and people say, this is what you need to do, everything in our sinful heart wants to rebel. My own heart wants to rebel at the, the challenge that I'm delivering this morning. So help us to be honest and bear before you, to seek your heart, to know the goodness and the generosity and the kindness and the grace of Jesus Christ, and to believe the path of disciple-making 
isn't just the way that church is done, but it's the way that goodness and light and life and world change is done in your name. Help our our hearts to be convinced of this in such a way that we're not only people who nod our heads at the call to disciple-making, at the Great Commission, but that we're people who commit our very lives every day of our life to walk with people on purpose, to help them walk in you, to help them pass on the life of faith for generations to come. And as we do so, may you receive all the glory and would you bring about goodness around us in the places that we work, in the places that we play, where we go to school, where we, where we spend our lives. Would you bring about goodness as this stuff catches and passes throughout society? In your power, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.